live in an uncertain and unpredictable world, and that's true pretty much in every aspect, including the political realm. The recent events, uh, events surrounding the uh, actor from the series Empire is just one more in a cascade of events which demonstrate the lengths to which some people will go to get what they want and to adv- or to advance their political, social agenda. And the Chicago police force, after two days of intensive investigations, determined the crime of hate was staged by the actor himself who paid two men who were to dress in red hats $3,500 to pretend to attack him. And one can appreciate the uh, police superintendent, Eddie Johnson's, restrained outrage over the phony accusations. As an African-American man himself, he could hardly believe that another black man would so demean those who have been genuine victims of real racial animus as well as further defame the reputation of a city already struggling with all other real and pressing problems. There was one bright uh, point in my explanation uh, in the whole repugnant situation. It was a remark that uh, the police superintendent made when he addressed the press. Mr. Johnson said that he would continue to pray for this troubled young man. And I wonder how many of us, when we heard that story, thought that we ought to pray for him. You know, it was good to hear a public official acknowledge a power higher than himself or the city that he served. Indeed, there's not enough of that honest kind of humility in the public arena today. Justice seems to be in the making in Chicago. It seems uh, as though truth will out. And I, for one, rejoice that it is so. And yet you and I are aware of other events in the recent, very recent history of our nation where people in power were unafraid not only to attempt to annihilate another person's reputation, but they were willing to destroy his family and the life of his uh, life and the lives of his family. And yet uh, to this point there's been no accounting and maybe on this side of heaven there won't be. I just don't know. But I know that ultimately... No one gets away with anything. There is either judgment or forgiveness for every evil deed done under the sun. For now, anyway, there are people who have enough juice who can pull the right strings and so derail justice for a season. A small-time actor is evidently not one of them, and most certainly neither are we. You and I are the hoi polloi. You and I are the everyday people who have to make our way through a world shaped by a political process that in recent years has become more and more devoid of the true and the beautiful. We, We mourn the passing of civility and of honest discourse where reasonable and responsible people could disagree and yet still respect one another. And none of us knows if our own night of the long knives is lying around the next corner. And yet here we are. (laughs) And here we will remain. There is no place to flee to. There is no better place on this earth than this nation, which stands as a beacon of light in a dark world, 
fading though that light may be. Until Jesus returns, this is where we make our stand. So we will make the best of it, whatever comes our way. And if, as is likely enough, either one way or the other, although we hope and pray for good to come, asking our gracious Heavenly Father to revive us once again, as he has done at other times in our history, But if this nation goes the way of all other nations where despots rule and good people are treated like refuse and ground into the dirt, well, then we have only been plunged into that world which most of humankind has known through most of its sad history. Whether we see revival and a return to something of our former glory or not, The Bible has a word for us about living in an uncertain world with all its unsure politics. Now, we're studying the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, and we've come to chapter 8, where the author, Solomon, addresses the politics of his day. A day ruled by kings, where democracies and representative republics were not only not heard of, they were undreamed of. A time when one Man could make the whole system sour, where if he tripped, the nation would fall. And if that seems unfortunate to you, you must remember the opposite was also true. One righteous king could do much good. It was a time where if he stood tall, the whole nation would rise. It takes a lot longer to derail our system. And once derailed, it'll take uh, a lot of work to write it again. But with God's grace, it may yet be righted. So pray. (laughs) Keep on praying. But whatever the political system and whatever the state of affairs, people still must live. And the words Solomon wrote uh, to the people of his day apply to our day too. So I'm going to ask you to join me once again in your Bibles in the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Or you can follow along. Uh, the text will be displayed on the screens uh, on uh, either side of me. So chapter 8 begins with two rhetorical questions and an observation to get us prepared for the political discussion which follows. So first, in verse 1, Solomon asks, Who is like the wise? Now, he's not expecting an answer. He expects that by now you will know what he's getting at, that you will understand that wisdom is the thing that God gives you which enables you to live an upright life in this world, whatever the circumstances. And the second question, likewise, is meant to remind us of a truth that Solomon has taken a great deal of pains to teach us, that only God knows the how and why and the workings of reality. And that's what Solomon is getting at when he asks who knows the explanation of things. Only God knows what the future holds. Only God knows the whys and the hows. Only God really understands the human heart and condition. And yet, though we cannot know those things, he offers to us wisdom that befits us as his creatures so that we can live upright lives in this world. And knowing those two truths, well, they change us. Solomon concludes uh, in the rest of verse 1, a person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. 
See, if you're wise with a godly wisdom, a wisdom that comes from God, then you'll know that God is in control and your outlook, your face will brighten, your outlook is clearer. The hardness of your countenance will soften because your heart is softer. You are better prepared as a follower of the one true king for whatever comes your way. And so after that setup, the teacher in verse 2 plunges us into the political world of his day. And what I would do before we look at the next verse is I would translate what he says in that verse into our day by stating that we ought to be law-abiding and loyal. So this is what verse 2 says. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Now, there's really no doubt about the meaning of the first part of that verse. People in Solomon's time were to obey the king. In our day, we obey the law. You see, we in the United States have no king. Uh, but, but if we did, the king himself would be expected to obey the law. The West, a long time ago, settled an ongoing argument whether it was Lex Rex or Rex Lex. Rex means king, Lex means law. So the debate is, or was, is the king law or is the law king? And it was decided that the law was king. So in the West, a king has to obey the law just as we must. So so just to be clear, though, so we're all on the same page. In that day, in Solomon's day, it was Rex Lex. The king's word was the law, and he must be obeyed. So the long and short of it is, is that the people of God, whatever age we're living in, must be a law-abiding people. Now, the Hebrew in the second part of that, uh, that verse, too, is a little bit more ambiguous. It may mean that people in that day took an oath to the king. That's the way the NIV translates it. But it might mean that the king swore an oath to God, and therefore the people had to help him fulfill it. Or it might be that God um, swore an oath when he put that king on the throne, which would indicate obeying the king was the same thing as recognizing God's authority. Now, I can't tell you which one of those three it is. What I can tell you is is that what all those three things have in common is loyalty. You see, you and I as believers, we don't just um, keep the letter of the law. We're supposed to keep the spirit of it. It reminds me of what Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 3 of that letter. And um, I, I hope you see the connection. He says this, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with a sincerity of heart and a reverence to the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working to the Lord and not for human masters. And somehow in ways that maybe we don't understand, God is a big part, the most important part of that whole equation. We are to be law-abiding and loyal. We obey the law because of the loyalty in our hearts. So people in Solomon's day, they were to stand by their king. And people in our day, well, we need to stand up for our nation. So you know our servicemen and women. They swear an oath to support and defend the Constitution 
against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to bear a true and faithful allegiance to the same. Many of you have taken that oath. Two of my children have. The president makes a similar promise to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And both of those oaths, in both of them, loyalty and obedience go hand in hand. It's not enough just to do it on the outside. We obey because we put our heart in it. Now, of course, there are times when one has to disobey authority, right? I mean, a serviceman or a woman uh, is bound by the military code of contact, and that's mentioned in that oath that they take, and they have to disobey any order from any superior that uh, contradicts that code, as hard and as lonely as that might be. And Christians obey God rather than any human human being if there is a conflict between the king's command or the laws of a human government. We stand with the word of God and we will obey God's word, whatever the consequences. And that precedent was established early in the history of the church when the religious authorities ordered the apostles not to preach any longer in Jesus' name, to which the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. But if there's no conflict, then we're to be law-abiding and loyal, whatever the cause. Now, I don't know that that's always easy. Are, are you with me on this? I, I don't know that that's always easy. In fact, I know that sometimes it requires a great sacrifice. In, in times of war or disaster, people put their lives on the line. Uh, sometimes they make the ultimate sacrifice to stand up for this nation, for the people of this nation. And yet I do think that would be easier to do that very thing when the nation or the king or the laws are just and upright and good. But what if they aren't? What if the king is corrupt? What if the laws are wrong? And I don't just mean here and there, but systemically uh, they're wrong-headed and everything is moving in there. What if the whole nation has gone off course? What then? Well, I think that's where verse 3 and following takes us. It takes us into the territory of the uh, despot and the tyrannical. Now, I'm going to tell you something right up front. Uh, There are people that think verse 3 and following uh, are telling us not to stick our heads in the lion's mouth. And later on, you take some time and read it, and you can read it exactly that way. They, they tell you that their verses are telling you you cannot do any good by standing up to a bad king. All you're going to do is get yourself in trouble, and you may well lose your life. They're advocating laying low and making the best of things. But I think it's a little more nuanced than that. I think the text is actually saying something more in the order of choose your battles carefully. And we're going to have to talk uh, about these things under the life lived under a king because that's how our passage approaches the subject. But I think we'll be able to make the application in our own situation. So verse 3 says this, Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Now, if we were to start from the end of that verse, we can say that in that day the king's word was law, Rex. So you had to keep that in mind. Uh, The king is going to do what he wants. 
And then certainly, you don't want to stand up for a bad cause. But I want to make sure you understand what Solomon means by that. He does not mean don't stand up for what some might refer to as a lost cause. That's not at all what he's saying here. Indeed, as we're going to see, we may be should stand up for a cause even if it loses. He is specifically referring here to an evil cause. We never want to stand up for that. We never want to stand for that. Never. And yet we must not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. That's that's where Solomon started. Well, why not? (laughs) Why should we remain there in the presence of the king? Or why should we be in a hurry to leave there in the first place? Well, maybe we'd be in a hurry to leave if the king's command made us angry. Or if we knew that his command was wrong and we were afraid he might call on us to carry it out. Or we might hurry to leave to avoid speaking up, to avoid being put in a very uncomfortable position of presenting a viewpoint that is different from the one whose word is law. Now let me ask you something. What do you think? Should you remain in the king's presence under such circumstances in order to speak up for what is right? Would you? If we don't have, if we leave, are we by our silence standing up for an evil cause? I mean, yeah, the king is going to do what he will do. That's true. But you're responsible for your actions. You know, some of my little ones at Little Lamb and Iwana, the cubbies in Iwana, They could tell you about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were commanded to bow down to a 90-foot-tall gold statue and they refused to do it even though they knew they'd be thrown into a fiery furnace. They could tell you about Daniel and the lion's den who Daniel continued to pray even though it was forbidden and the penalty was to be tossed into that lion's den. Well, we know they were delivered, but they were willing to pay that penalty anyway. Are we? Are we really to stand for what's right? You see, when I read verse 3, I hear Solomon saying something like, uh, you are in the king's presence for a reason, and not everyone is so placed. Don't abandon your post. Speak up. Don't allow evil to stand. Do what is right, even though you don't know what the king will do. The king will do what he'll do, but you stand up for what is right. Now, we're not under a king's rule today. But there are powerful forces at work in our nation. And crossing them can get you doxed. Some of you have experienced that. Your mailbox might get jammed with hate mail and death sentences or death threats. Rather than enough, you might have protesters uh, outside your home or chasing you from restaurants and movie theaters and malls. Wear the wrong color hat, you might get attacked. Do you know that a recent survey discovered that more Americans are afraid of their own government, specifically the corruption in government, than anything else. Terrorist attacks, economy, nothing else even comes close. 
How can that happen in this nation? Today, people are afraid to say what they believe in public anymore. But if we don't speak up, who will? Or are the brute forces of the ignorant and unstable and deceitful really going to be permitted to have it all their own way? Or will people, righteous people, stand for the truth? I know you, you know that famous quote, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. It's true, you know. It's true. We know instinctively it's true because God's given everyone that much common sense. And yet standing for the truth is not the same thing as a shouting match or a brawl. And so verses 4 and 5 each offer a piece of advice which added together tells us we ought to be tactful in such situations. And we're going to look at both verses briefly in turn. So verse 4 says, Since a king's word is supreme... Who can say to him, what are you doing? So that question really is a kind of a direct challenge of his authority. But we get a better sense of its meaning by using our kind of idiomatic phrase uh, in that question, which would be, just what do you think you're doing? I mean, the king's word is supreme. Who can say to him, just what do you think you're doing? See, Solomon's advice is don't cop an attitude toward the king. He is the king, after all. If you must speak up, then do so respectfully. That's true in our time, too, isn't it? I mean, shouldn't we remain calm and respectful when we're called upon to stand up for righteousness' sake? Verse 5 goes on to tell us, We ought to be circumspect or cautious. Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise in heart will know the proper time and procedure. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it here. Those who obey him will not be punished. Those who are wise will find a time and a way to do what's right. So what this verse is saying is that if you know... If, you know, if the king knows that you want to obey him, he's going to look, on favor with you, look with favor on you. And if, if he knows he can rely on you, um, you're not likely going to face punishment if you speak up for a right cause. But, but you have to think about how you're going to do it. I mean, it's no ma- little matter to speak up in such a situation. Now, I, I hope you're not disappointed when I say this next thing. But I can't tell you any more than that. Just as Solomon couldn't. The wise in those situations find their way as they're led by God. And so today, though the stakes are high and we live in a polarized society, we can still show love and respect for others, can't we? I mean, if we do, won't they be more likely to respond in kind? And even if they don't, We have our marching orders. We're to love even our enemies. So I think we ought to be thoughtful and tactful and ready to listen as well as ready to talk. We should try to find the right way to do the right thing. Should we? So there is, of course, no guarantee uh, that uh, we will win someone over, but at least we don't want to be the cause for greater division. So we're going to stand for what is right, And we're going to walk in wisdom and find the right way and the right time to do that. 
So as we continue in the text, verse verse 6 emphasizes that. It emphasizes by repetition that the wise will find a way in such situations. But Solomon also seems to be kind of changing course somewhat in verse 6. He seems to be allowing that even if we walk in wisdom, things might not go as we hope for. And we've already acknowledged that. But in verse 6, we read, for there is a proper time and a procedure for everything, every matter. So he's reinforcing that truth he just stated in verse 5. And we continue reading, though a person may be weighed down by misery. So it's true that the proper, there's a proper time and a way. And even when the results weigh you down with some kind of misery. The wise find the right way and right time to speak, but things don't always turn out well. It may be that you find yourself in a miserable place. And from this point on, Solomon talks as though the king is corrupt, or at least that we find ourselves in that situation. So verse 7 says this, Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? If you stand for what is right, Solomon is saying, I can't tell you how things are going to turn out. At your workplace today, tomorrow, this week, if you stand for what is right when your boss wants to do something unethical, no one can tell you how things will turn out. Maybe your boss will have any found respect for you. Maybe your boss will change his or her course in their mind. Or maybe you'll find yourself on the outside and going nowhere fast. Only God knows the outcome of any situation. For us who believe in the Bible, what, what will that mean in the days to come? In England, today, in England, people have been jailed and convicted for preaching. Actually, for even just talking about the biblical truth about homosexuality. Canada now considers the same thing to be hate speech, even though it's God's word, and they will imprison you for it. We find identical attitude in other places in Europe. Now, I don't think I was being very dramatic or too dramatic Uh, I think I was doing what I could. When I told my wife and children, I was trying to prepare them for what might happen one day to me. When prior to the 2016 election, I told them that if the Democratic candidate, and pardon me for saying this, if you're a Democrat, I'm not picking on you. I'm speaking the truth here. If the Democratic candidate had have won, I knew that I could end up in prison Because I will not stop preaching the truth. I won't be silenced. Do you think that cannot happen here? You better think again. Ten years ago, no one thought it could happen in England or Canada. But here we are. Ten years ago, no one thought we'd see same-sex marriage legalized by fiat of the court or politicians who would be advocating that men be allowed in girls' middle and high school locker rooms. And it's worse than that. One man refused to go into a girl's locker room to supervise it in a high school 
on principle, and he was fired and lost his job and lost his appeal. The list of assault on religious freedom today in our country is long. And the press doesn't report those things because it doesn't suit their agenda because most people are outraged when they hear it. But there you go. It's already here. Listen. The truth is, the left is doing all they can to drive faith out of the public square. And if and when they succeed there, they will drive us out altogether. Make no mistake about it. This has been a political battle because it was first a spiritual battle. And no one except God knows what the future holds. So standing in front of the truth might get you into trouble. And the two thoughts in verse 8 are really rather sobering. The first sentence says, No one has power over the wind to contain it, and so no one has power over the time of their death. So you gather whatever things you may, uh, you you take whatever tools you want, uh, start any machinery that you have in mind, go, step out into a field, and try as you might, you're not going to contain the wind. It's not in your power, and it's not meant to be in your power. And it's just a thought here, and I'm not really ready to draw any firm conclusions, but I wonder, I can't help but wonder, the Hebrew word as well as the Greek word for spirit is the same as the word for wind. And I'm not so sure if Solomon is just using the picture of a wind here as an illustration or if he's referring obliquely to a spiritual war which rages around us. In any case, we don't have control over either the wind or the spiritual realm, and neither can we delay the time of our death? The things Solomon is talking about here are just that serious. They are deadly serious. The second sentence in verse eight really does point to a spiritual battle. No one is just, as no one is discharged in a time of war, so wickedness not, will not release those who practice it. We must all choose a side. We will stand for righteousness or we will promote wickedness and be mastered by it. The world is so moving and is so ordered that now in our time, soon, very soon, no one will be able to straddle a fence any longer. The day of decision is upon us. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine and the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem and the earth and the heavens will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. You will choose. For yourself you will choose. You will live with or die for your choices. And that's true even if the ship of our nation is righted again and the day of doom is delayed. The decision will only be less dramatic, but every bit is real. Now, listen to me. I I know that everything I'm saying to you sounds dramatic, and it's frightening in a lot of ways. And we're going to walk out of this room, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to go somewhere, we're going to eat a nice lunch. (laughs) And then we're going to go back to our comfortable homes, and everything is going to seem as though it's right in the world. But the forces we've been talking about are real. And they are moving in our day and in our time, and we would not be the first people who slept as the enemies gathered at the city gates. And it's time, it's past time for us to wake up. 
Now, Solomon is not quite done with this topic. The politics of the world always seem so all-encompassing, almost as though they define reality. But they don't, not really. (laughs) So Solomon tells us a couple of things that kind of put our world into the right perspective. He tells us some things that will prove helpful if we find ourselves in a place and time where we could win the day. He tells us about their end in verse 9. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. So Solomon right now is sharing his deductions with us. There is a time when a man lords it over or exercises authority over others to his own heart. Yeah, a king, uh, he can promote unrighteousness and he can hurt others by it, but he is also injuring himself, and by far his injuries are the greater. The book of Psalms chapter 9 verse 16 puts it this way. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. And verse 10 continues and expands that idea. Then too I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. And this too is meaningless. In his observation Solomon saw the wicked buried. Oh, they used to come, they used to go from the holy place, whether it was a temple or some other important place like a palace or a government building or some famous gala or social event. They used to be praised by all the people around them, but now they're dead. They're gone, they're buried. Such is the fleeting nature of a life lived in wickedness and abuse of power. That's the real meaning of that last sentence. This too is meaningless. It's fleeting. In the scheme of things, there but a breeze which passes and is no more. But we who know the Lord will live forever. That same psalm goes on this way to say this. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead and all the nations and forget God. But God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted, afflicted will never perish. That's reality. Though we don't know when God will act. And remember that, I think, helps us to stay strong in the face of diversity. Book of Hebrews says, speaking of people of faith, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they may gain an even better resurrection. Knowing the truth matters. So now we have to bring our time together to close. There are other things in this passage Uh, going almost all the way to the very end of it, that always accompany a wicked king or a corrupt government. But we're going to have to save those for another time. For now, I want to just see how all this applies to us, maybe in a more direct way. And to do that, we're going to look at both the beginning and the end of the chapter. First, I want to remind you of how Solomon prepared us to dive into the political arena. Verse 1, he said, Who's like the wise, who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. See, only God knows how things will turn out. We may, we, as we make our way through this world, I mean, he, he offers us real wisdom, which enables us to live upright lives, no matter what's happening in the world around us. And both of those ideas change us. Our sight, our insight, our understanding is clearer We don't know the future, but we know the one who holds the future, and we trust him. Our hearts are softened. Anger, frustration, despair, none of those things need to rule us. God is still 
in control. God still has plans for us, and they are good. We're better able to appreciate what the apostle meant when he said, 2 Corinthians 2, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance and troubles, hardships, distresses, and beatings, imprisonments, and riots, and hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, impurity, understanding, patience, and kindness in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, and truthful speech, and the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. And again in Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces and evil of evil in the heavenly realms. My dad once told me when I was a little boy, yes, I was going around getting into a lot of fights. And he told me, he said, son, don't go looking for a fight. But don't run from it either. Walk with God each day. And he will provide you his grace so you can stand for his truth when and as you need it. That's how Solomon began the discussion. Though it's not quite his last word on the matter. This is where he finishes it. It's something we've heard from Solomon before in verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life. Because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad and then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life that God has given them under the sun. And Solomon is not being a mere hedonist here. He explained before what this passage like this really means. But now we're just going to say that there is much good in this life that God has given us to enjoy. So enjoy it. <laughs> Come to church. <laughs> Have your cup filled so you have something to offer those on the outside. Invite the lost into your homes. Make them your friends. Love them. Save those that you can. That's how we'll win this battle. You see, you are the best hope this world has. It's not a person. It's not a party. It's not politics. It's not Washington, D.C. It's you. You are the salt and light of this world. And our church is an outpost of the kingdom. And the king is on the march. Are you with him? Let's pray with me, please. Lord, uh, a lot of unsettling things happening uh, all around us in, in this nation that we love. Well, there's so much more good happening. You are. And you are at work in our lives. And you are at work in the world around us. And it is quite possible that this world will get worse and worse politically, socially, economically. 
while at the same time, Lord, it could still be getting better and better as people come into the kingdom and find that eternal life that comes from you and you alone. Only you, Lord, not a government, not any earthly power. Only you can take our sins away. And only you can give us everlasting life. Help us, Lord, to stand strong. In Jesus' name, amen.